0: hey richard gottlieb how you doing i'm doing good
1: we got some uh, a eboo person on today
0: (laughs) Well, that's one way of of introducing it. Uh, we're talking to Mia Gallison, who is the founder of Eboo, and we're going to talk to her about her incredible journey and the great products she does and how COVID's impacted her business. But first, this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host, Richard Gottlieb, and we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, thetoyguy.com, marketing and media agency Chizcom, and Precise.tv. And Mia, how do you feel about being introduced as an Eboo person? <laughs>
2: Well, I mean, I would be very happy if anybody even knew what that meant.
0: (laughs) What
1: what does it mean? What does it mean?
2: Well, Ebu came from when we were trying to think of a name. You know, it's really hard to find a name for a toy company because everything is taken, like the the happy hippopotamus, the blue turtle, like anything you can think of has been trademarked or is being used in some way. So we're trying to find something that wouldn't be you know, that we would be able to clear. Cause back in those days, you'd have to write a letter to the trademark office and wait. So I like the name, the I like the word for owl in French, which is Eboo, but they spell it H I B O U, but we didn't want people to say hi, boo. I actually like the sound Eboo and it's two little E's and a big B and a two O's and sort of graphic. And it looks like peekaboo or Eekboo or something. So it just, it seemed really perfect. There were no other E things back then. There was no e-commerce or eBay. He <laughs> blasts. So it was an unusual shape, kind of looks like an animal face. I don't know. Everything about it just seemed right. And um, so that's where the word...
1: Well, it's, it's,
0: where a from. it's a wonderful Is wonderful mate? You really were at the forefront of somebody who started a business because you wanted to balance family and work. Tell us a little bit about how that came about.
2: Well, I had a traditional job doing product development for other people for a long time. And I was married, I am married to a, a wonderful guy who is a figurative painter and... We wanted to have kids. So we had a baby in New York City. And then like (laughs) five seconds later, we had twins. So I had three kids in less than two years. And I was working developing paper product for the gift industry. And my husband was painting and I thought we have to reevaluate this because it's it's not going to work because he can't stay home with these kids. And I have to make a really good living, you know, to find ways of supporting ourselves and and stay in the city where we wanted to stay. So I thought starting my own business was the only way. And the only way to really do it was to figure out how to be able to stay, you know, make the self-perpetuating organism where we just stayed in one place and we kind of took care care of the kids in this realm and we'd have people coming in and artists would come in and try to formulate a business that would work within this context. And we thought, well, there's a lot of stuff going on with the adult gift industry right now. And even though that's what I know the most about, there doesn't seem to be anything interesting going on with the development of children's educational stuff, um, simple, non-plastic, paper-based products for kids. And since my husband was an artist and we knew a lot of children's book illustrators, and my husband is actually also a children's book illustrator, we thought, let's start here. Let's just work here. Let's bring our friends in. Let's bring the people that we know that are psychologists and artists and writers and whatever and use our home as like a hub and just start generating things that we think that our kids would enjoy playing with that you can't find out in the open market that was filled at that point with everything licensed and a lot of VCR things that you'd put on. So kids would be watching TV to learn.
1: What what year did you start your company? 94. Okay. So a lot's happened since 1994. (laughs) So when did you know that the company was going to stay around?
2: I had a lot of luck right out of the gate, I would say. And I I do think a lot of it was luck and a lot of it was timing. There were not a lot of companies like mine. Nobody, really. Um, Women with children, making toys I mean the toy industry was very homogenous at that point There was very little specialty back in 94 and 95 96 I mean, my first toy fair was in this little ancillary tent outside of the toy fair i and remember I that i remember keep that keep like we walked in with like our 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 saw horses and set up our tables with <laughs> like, like you know, doors on top and fabric on top. It was really primitive. It was an end of an era of these large toy companies. And there was a hunger for these small businesses. And we right out of the gate had a lot of big supporters Um Land of Nod, which was just starting. I mean, they don't exist anymore. They're part of the Crate and Barrel, but they were uh, uh, immediately started to, to buy our stuff. We had good luck with uh, all the museum stores and with anthropology was carrying. I mean, people just bought into it very quickly because it felt very kind of like DIY and it had a real story behind it. And it was very novel and our stuff was quirky. It didn't look like anything else. We're using the art of children's book illustrators that people recognize, but it wasn't licensed. I mean, I think they, people got a sense that it was almost like the beginning of a new movement, you know, towards more wholesome, original, Toys and people were getting tired of this and they knew it wasn't right. The concept that you could stick your kids in front of a, a TV and they would get smarter or learn better. I mean, just at the beginning, I mean, we weren't wildly successful. We're still not wildly successful, but we were successful enough with this demographic of people that knew that you really needed to get down on the floor and play with your kids. And that was the only way that we really going to get to be smart and interesting people. And we provided an opportunity for them to do that.
0: This is the kind of stuff that I would have had growing up. This is the kind, my parents were both teachers. They would they would have loved this kind of thing, and they were really all about creative play. The worst thing you could say to my mother was "I'm bored," because her oh, yeah. response was always "No, you're not. Right. You've got your books. You've got your brothers. You've got outdoors. Figure it out." What's some of the philosophy behind the products that you develop in terms of that?
2: Well, I mean, as parents, we also felt like our kids, you know, should never be bored. They weren't. They weren't bored, and we tried as parents to find things that our kids were interested in and support those interests. So if a kid was interested in in science, we made sure that we got books about science and we went outside and looked at things ways to support those those interests and the way that that translated into our product was i think that there had been we look at toys from the 40s or the 50s even some early 60s and you see flashcards like bird flashcards yes, for kids yeah. like you would never see that now like what or you wouldn't have seen it then like what kid wants to learn about every kind of bird That's the kind of thing that maybe one of our kids would have been interested was in birds or dinosaurs or rocks or whatever. And so we thought that making these kind of old fashioned things like flashcards would be interested in them where you just give them a whole lot of information or bingo games where, you know, you have to get scientific facts. You know, what is a what is a thunderstorm? What is a rainbow? How do fish breathe or whatever? Like we really felt like kids were hungry for actual information about the world. They're interested in learning languages. We had one kid that like was really interested in languages really early on. The stuff that was being made for kids was really dumbed down for a while. And we tried to try to elevate that and say so you can start teaching kids can be interested when they're three or four or five in things. And you know, you don't have to find things that say, you know, that are for that age group necessarily. Your kid is your kid and their interests are their interests. And and you can find stuff to feed that and you don't have to dumb it down. You need to communicate with your kid in order to understand these things. And that is what I would say is our parenting philosophy. You need to get down on the floor, play with your kids, talk to them about what they're interested in, show them stuff so that they know that there is stuff to be interested in beyond the television set, and then, um, you know, and, and have it be a dialogue.
0: That's really interesting to me because one of the things that I've observed is information is a kind of currency for kids. They love to learn things. And they love to come to tell you what they've learned, because it's a kind of validation of who they are as individuals. You had mentioned that because of COVID, you'd done pretty well. Can you talk about how COVID impacted your company?
2: I've had Eboo for 27 years now, developing all this educational product. And a couple of years ago, um, I took my first business class that I actually a part of a, a women's business program. I should have done it, way 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 long ago but i didn't so i started very late to the game and one of the things that they make you do is give like a pitch about what you do and i felt like we did so many things I made, like juggling balls and art supplies and i mean we have a curriculum in Ibu that that tries to go through all the different levels of development but i had just started making adult jigsaw puzzles just like experimenting very lightly in it because i thought there's so many people in that marketplace So I had, you know, stacking blocks for like really little kids, you know, like I've got little rattles, stuffed rattles. And then I also had adult jigsaw puzzles. And what I learned when I was trying to make this pitch was it was hard to do a pitch that explained a line that was all over the place. So I thought I'll take the very, very far end, which of the end of the spectrum, which is these adult jigsaw puzzles and make that into a separate line and really dive into it and try to use all the things that I was being taught about. How to make a real, like, grown-up business and apply them to just the adult jigsaw puzzle market. So, I made a separate catalog. I went after separate customers, just in the nick of time for <laughs> there to be like the world's biggest explosion of interest in jigsaw puzzles. So I don't attribute it to brilliance of any kind. I I'll attribute ninety percent of my success to being in the right place at the right time. So that's what happened. I was making adult jigsaw puzzles. I never go into anything a little. I always go way in. So if I fail, I have a catastrophe. (laughs) if If it's successful, I usually do pretty well. That's not the most sensible business practice, but that's what I tend to do. So I went way into adult jigsaw puzzles and we had a lot of stock, and we could ship it because our warehouse was an essential service. Also, did essential services, so we were just we were positioned with all these small specialty stores to be able to ship to them, which they were very happy about. Since some of the bigger guys weren't shipping to specialty and just feeding their their big guys, and we are mostly a specialty toy, specialty gift business. I said so thirty five hundred small stores. That's our base. So we were able to really build up a following, and we were able to go into a direct-to-consumer model, which we had never done before, like not anything. And, you know, we launched our new website in January. (laughs) So we were just, I mean, it was a lot to learn, but the confluence of those elements, we had a very good year.
1: Is your business coming out of coronavirus a different business than it was going in?
2: Yes, I think it really was. I mean, going in the adult jigsaw puzzles were about 16% of our business. Now it's about exactly 50-50. So that's a big difference. And that is both gives us a separate market, but also shares a market. All of our eboo customers, I would say, and I can almost say all, anybody that had ever bought an eboo product will also buy a Peace and Love product which is our adult jigsaw puzzles and then beyond that we've built a whole market of people that weren't interested in children's things and they are just buying the peace and love mark they are just buying adult jigsaw puzzles and occasionally we're getting to bring them in to to try a few children's things So that's very different. And then this direct-to-consumer business is a totally, totally different business with marketing, which we never did, and all the logistics of shipping individual packages and getting phone calls from people that have lost a piece. You know, instead of getting a phone call from someone that wants to place a $600 order, it's a phone call from a lady that can't find a piece to her puzzle or wants to know (laughs) what your opinion is. If she's already done this puzzle, should she buy this one or this one? That's like, it's very different business.
1: And, and what is the state of your customer base now? Uh, we I know we lost some specialty stores.
2: We gained uh, a thousand specialty stores during COVID.
1: You did you did phenomenal.
2: And over twenty two thousand um, individual consumers onto our website.
1: That is impressive.
2: Well, I mean, it's jigsaw puzzles. It wasn't us, but yes, it was. It was the hunger Not for like jigsaw and we were offering something in our in our jigsaw puzzles that is substantively different than what was available out there from other from other players.
1: And I would have another question, real quick. Where, where do you make your products?
2: Um, we do some manufacturing in Vietnam, some in Taiwan, and gr- a great deal in mainland
0: China. Of the children's products, what would you say are, are your most popular? You have you have a lot of diversity. You have art supplies, you have games, you have puzzles. What do you find are the most popular? And do you have any data to suggest that they're sort of a gateway? If somebody find, buys one, they tend to become a, a customer for over time.
2: I think all of our stuff is great and all of it is a gateway stuff. If someone holds an Eboo thing, they feel different than a lot of other products. I use very good materials. I use all recycled materials and, and vegetable-based inks. We've had, you know, part of our whole thing since we started was a sustainability, but our stuff is is very hefty and nice. So when people hold it in their hands, they tend to go back and want more stuff. And I've gotten rid of a lot of categories that didn't do well. So I wouldn't say that I have one that is uh, dominant because we have lots of different markets. But our special needs products our stuff that has to do with social, emotional intelligence products, I think are very, very distinctive. I don't think anybody else does them anywhere near as well as we do. So... Those are very differentiating. I mean, we make them like not only that they're good for education and for talking and for therapy, but also they're sweet and they're kind and they're easy to use um, and they're very accessible. So I'd say all of our social and emotional intelligence stuff has been very strong. We do we have a lot of stuff that shows kids of diverse backgrounds. That's also been one of our core values. So we have a number of products that have been in our line for 25 years, 23 years, that still continue to be some of our best-selling products. And those are ones like I Never Forget a Face, which shows children from all over the world, that we did right at the advent of the Iraq War to show people that there were kids, children that were living in all these countries that people were considering to be, you know, hostile or, you know, enemies of ours. So those, th- those have lasted because that's kind of our brand is that we're, you know, sensitive and kind and want nice things for people. And like, <laughs> can we... That I think they're signature product, brand products.
1: How do you keep up with these um, kind of ancillary trends? I don't know that the toy industry would necessarily be aware of social, emotional in- intelligence uh, as a trend. You were able to tap into these other trends that are going on that are a little more below the radar. How do you know about social emotional intelligence? How do you well, know that?
2: About- I think is kind of what just differentiates Ebu from other toy companies, even small sp- specialty ones. It's like we are legitimately and authentically run by parents of a whole bunch of kids who had a whole bunch of friends, and we grew up. You know, our house was. Our apartment was an epicenter for children of all different kinds over many, many, many years. Our kids are now out of college. Two of them are getting their PhDs. But we saw a lot of kids and interacted with our kids all the time. And so these trends came from our experiences as being parents that we probably wouldn't have recognized if we were working in a corporate setting or even in a place where the raising of children was not such an essential part of
0: our life. Right. It was it was organic. I, I want to go back and ask you a little bit about what are your social emotional learning products, because this is a big trend right now.
2: Well, we've done our, our flashcards are what we sell the most out of. We have I mean we have simple ones like good manners. And then we went to something called what do I do? And those were scenes like little illustrations with animals, not children. So they were easy and accessible For a child and say, okay, so there are two bunnies over here and they're talking and there's a bunny over here that's not clearly not being included. Like, what's going on here? What do you do? What do you do if you're these bunnies? We don't call them flashcards. We call them conversation cards. And they're meant for a parent or someone in their lives to show a kid and say, what's going on here? And a lot of them are about just basic empathy. Some of them are about basic behaviors. It's very much open-ended. And I think it's really for any child. I mean, in the United States right now, they're saying one out of every 66 kids is diagnosed on the autism spectrum. But who knows, it could, whatever we're calling that and however we're defining that spectrum, there are a lot of kids that don't know how to communicate with other people, that don't know how to make eye contact, that don't know how to relate because they're either in front of their screens too much, or they've been socialized in a a different way.
0: Those flashcards, getting kids to talk about that, that's something that is a a modality that's used in therapy with kids.
2: Yes, 100%. And as a good parent, you want to like, when your kids are getting ready for school, you kind of, in our opinion, I don't know, it's not based on science, but it's based on parenting, you want to like set your kids up for the day, like okay, here you are, you know, how do you feel? Like, what are you going to do today? Like, you know, what are you hoping for? What are you nervous about? Like kind of setting them up to send them out. And when they come back in at the end of the day and you eat together or you spend some time together after work, you got to go through it. How was your day? Mm -hmm. Like anything happened that was confusing to you? Anything that happened was great. Like what was like, I don't know, what is like your rose, your thorn, your whatever, you know, some version of that. Because it lets them, you know, you just get to things that you wouldn't otherwise get to. I mean, sometimes there are very sticky things that are happening with kids at school. And unless you, you know, come, keep coming at it, they're not going to get that out. And the last thing you want, as we discovered, you know, really how important that was, is to start these conversations when your kids are little and keep going with it. So you're not one of these parents that have teenagers locked in the room that won't talk to you at all. Like you really want to normalize conversation so that you're not knocking on their door and trying to find out what's going on with them after you haven't talked to them for five years.
1: When I was a kid, I was looking back, I think they were trying to thin the population because we would have uh, our playground, it would be a cement slab, uh, (laughs) a chain link fence. And, And so the design of the swings was so that you could not only knock out your your brains, but your teeth as well. Yeah. And, and and today, we're very safety conscious. And I'm wondering, do you have any insights from your work on what happened? Why are uh, millennial parents far more safety conscious and, and emotionally aware of where their children's heads are?
2: I mean, I'm really only speculating. Did you grow up in New York City?
1: No, I grew up in in uh, Hampton, Virginia.
2: Because growing uh, up in New York City, it was so dangerous and so ridiculous. That it was
1: dangerous at the of Sims Eaton Elementary School playground
2: too. Talk about like really bad playgrounds. Nineteen sixty-eight, sixty-nine in New York City was terrible, and I can't believe my parents like allowed us out and about at insanely young ages. <laughs> So I think I <laughs> as my you know, as as our my parenting was, like I was definitely more protective of my kids than my parents had been of mine. Like I didn't want my kids in an elevator with certain people in the building. Like my parents, like uh, they wouldn't even have thought of that. I think it's cyclical a little bit. And people react to the kind of parenting that is trending and maybe they kind of push against it or believe they can improve upon it with their kids. So Maybe they felt like their parents were also not paying attention enough and now they're hyper conscious of every little thing. I don't know why it is. And I think there are pluses and minuses. I tried to find a balance as parents who tried to find a balance between letting our kids be independent. I think generally amongst our friends, we allowed our kids to walk around the city earlier because we raised our kids in New York City. Because I think you're you're safer to some degree if you have the confidence to do slightly dangerous things. I mean, as long as they're, you know, they're bracketed so they don't get killed. I think it's good for a kid's confidence to be trusted to do something. And if you make kids feel untrust, like they, they can't trust anything in that environment or that you don't trust their judgment to deal with anything, then you raise kids that are just essentially going to be frightened. And nervous about that. And confidence leads you to be a safer person, I think, in general.
1: Who is your customer?
2: Who is my customer? We have the adult jigsaw puzzle market. And I think that is a woman that loves to do puzzles, but wants to do something with slightly a more. I wouldn't say it's not a feminine theme, but it's a it's a woman theme. Like we do. Things that women like, like birds and flowers and things like that. But we also do some that are political. We do a women's march. We do a climate march. We do a suffragist puzzle. Um, and We do science puzzles that are because women like science. I mean, we don't necessarily do the bracketed things that a more conservative company would think, oh, this is a woman's thing. For our children's products, I think... We are we market to people that want to spend time with their kids, that value the quality or that value the recycled nature of our stuff. We appeal to parents who want to stretch their kids in terms of, of learning and feel like their kids can handle more educational material. They want to push their kids. They have higher aspirations for their kids it's a large demographic it's it's aspirational somewhat they want to you know they want their kids to have a broader view of the world they want their kids to seek children of of different ethnicities because they value that because they value that they value education they value science they value quality they value sustainability they value the fact that they're supporting a woman owned business all of those things that the quality of the art that they believe kids can appreciate good art and good design. I think there's a big part of the population that doesn't believe that's important for children. We totally think that things being beautiful and well-made are great for children because it teaches, you know, it gives children an idea of what those, what beauty means and good design means and what good illustration is. But there are a lot of people that don't care about that. So we are definitely appealing to the people that do care about that.
0: How has your sales operation changed during COVID?
2: Well, we were very fast to be remote. And then came this wave of direct-to-consumer business. So we had to um, hire new people, which we did. We implemented a whole new meeting structure. And then we just have a more rigorous face-to-face meeting schedule. I've hired a lot of people that live with other people that work for me. Like I hired people's wives and husbands (laughs) and girlfriends and roommates because that's how I could train people. And I trusted those people and I knew they were going to be in there supporting one another. So we have um, we didn't add a lot of addresses to our roles, but we added a lot of people. We've tried to engage as robustly as possible in the digital trade shows, which have gotten progressively better. We seem to get good responses. I mean, it seems to be growing. And now we're looking forward to Shop Object is going to be in October. I think that's pretty much a done deal we're thinking about going to the toy fair in october that's still up in the air a little bit but i think we'll start participating in that regard and we have you know very long conversations with all of our sales reps over zoom in which i hold everything up and i open everything up and i've always done sales presentations myself i'm still meeting with the buyers from stores and i see their living room and they see my living room and we like yeah and we do a lot of zoom calls i would say it's like you know, eight hours of Zoom calls a day, pretty much. It's now the new normal. Yeah, that's nice to get back to the back to the office.
1: Did you ever try dabbling with the mass market?
2: I looked at you know what would be necessary to do to meet to meet the needs of of these larger accounts, and I thought it wasn't necessarily worth the trade off. I mean, when my kids were still home, and because I mean, remember they're like in one solid block, they were like three of them in two years. <laughs> I didn't want to give up those years, and I knew because I had kind of experimented with a little bit. Like, I really didn't want to give up my life. And you read articles about small businesses that ramp up like that. And they say, I'm in the office until midnight every night. I was like, no, this is my opportunity to to be with my family. And I'm making enough money to live decently and well and whatever. I'm going to get them on their way. And then I'll start dealing with these other challenges. And that's what I did. They all went off to college. And then I started looking at those possibilities. So we did some stuff with Target. We've done some private label things. Um, I now have a new sales manager who's very strong, and I believe that we will do more of it now going forward. That's great. I mean, not in a mass way in that we dumb down our product or we start making it out of plastic or we reduce the quality. And I'm only interested in going into the mass market if I can retain my, the quality of my brand and the, the feeling of my brand.
0: So, Mia, we're going to ask you the question we ask all of our guests here on the Playground podcast. Tell us a secret.
2: I don't know if this is a secret, but it's definitely a mystery to most people. And I think especially women in business, but it could be anyone. I think the best piece of business advice I ever got was when someone told me, don't ever let someone make you make a decision on the spot. So I guess the secret about me would be, I never give a decision on the spot. I always say, I'll think about it and I'll call you back.
0: Mia Gallison, who is the founder of Eboo, thank you so much for joining us. You know, I listen to you talk, and I think all the corporations I talk to right now who are talking about diversity and work-life balance and all of that, and that's been baked into your company since day one, and it really shows in the quality of the product you do and your following and just the beauty of it. So thank you for spending the time with us today. We really appreciate it.
2: Oh, thank you very much. Thanks.
0: This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about issues that are top of mind in the toy industry right now. And certainly one that we've been talking about all year is diversity, social change. We've seen All the great stuff that Mattel has done with Creatable World and all of their more inclusive Barbies, we've seen the fresh dolls. And now in celebration of Pride Month, Mattel has introduced a Pride Uno. And of course, the set that's getting a lot of publicity and a lot of attention is the Everyone is Awesome set from Lego that celebrates really the entire range of humanity and diversity. And Richard, you recently wrote about social change and how toy companies are responding. Yeah, Chris, I think what's
1: really fascinating about this and what really struck me was I don't think a Mattel or a Lego or any major company that has spent literally billions of dollars and decades building brand equity, would risk that equity if they thought it was a bad decision. They wouldn't take a cultural position if they thought it would be bad for their brand and for their company. So what that tells me is that these companies believe it's good business. And so the question becomes, why is it good business? And I think that says a lot about this current young generation of parents who really did not grow up with a lot of the walls that were put up as far as race, religion, and gender were in prior generations.
0: I think it also points out that the toy industry consistently reflects the culture. It doesn't lead the culture. If you look at the original instruction sheet for the erector sets, it says, hey boys, unthinkable that a girl would want to engineer something in the early years of the 20th century and i think what we see in the everyone is awesome set in the pride set from uno is we see an evolution to a time that is much more celebrating diversity and inclusion. And it's not just that it's a good political statement. There's a lot of research out right now that shows that d programs increase employee retention, they increase innovation within a company, and though it's only one element, it can impact sales and stock prices. So, It really is part of being a responsible player in today's environment to acknowledge all of this and in the case of Uno and Lego, celebrate it.
1: And I think it says something both about right now and it says something about 20 years from now. Because right now, what it's telling us is that there is a parent class that is extremely comfortable with these issues of of gender in particular in which they are not as distinct. And so they're comfortable. And so these toy companies think they are appealing to these parents and and you know they've done a lot of research.
0: (laughs) Of course they have. Right.
1: And then it tells us that in 20 years, they're also connecting with a generation that's going to be adults and going to be parents. So they're betting on the present and they're betting on the future. And I, I think it's very interesting when good business and I'm going to go ahead and say it, good values come together, I think it's good value. I really do. I think this is a, a a good. We're just going to say it. I think this is a moment when good business and good values come together. Because there's going to be people who are not going to think it's a good.
0: Right, and that's in fact what's happened with the Lego set that came out, which is there's been a lot of screeching and teeth gnashing and garment rending on the right about what they're doing. And all of that just feeds into Lego's publicity. And I have to tell you, I think that Lego is laughing all the way to the bank with this because they are getting a level of publicity that they couldn't get otherwise. And I do think that these extreme right-wing people coming up against the Gen Z and the millennials just end up looking ridiculous, and Lego looks all that much better.
1: And there is something very kind in allowing children and their parents to find their own way without a lot of external social pressure. So I say good for Patel, and good for Lego, and good for anybody else who's trying to make a difference. I'm just grateful it's good business.
0: It is good business, and I'm grateful that it really reflects in a very concrete way something that might be a little bit amorphous. When you look at that multicolored Lego set that has all races, all genders pretty much included in it, you think, wow, isn't that wonderful that everybody is being given this sense of equality and validity and that people aren't being shut out. And it's just a toy, but it's also a reflection of how people see themselves. If you remember when we talked to Dr. Lisa Williams, she talked about developing the Fresh Dolls and how important it was for young African-American girls to see themselves, their hairstyles, their body, their fashion reflected in a consumer product. And I think that's what we're seeing here. And I think it's, as you say, it's good business, it's good values because it supports childhood and it supports things that we respect.
1: And I'll tell you something else I think is good about it. This is a very fractious time It's a lot of angry voices. And it's so nice to have companies and individuals that are really making an effort to bring people together. And and this new product from from Lego really is about bringing everyone together. It's a real positive thing. I'm proud of these companies. And uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what other toy companies uh, jump on board.
0: And I think they will because, if anything, the toy industry is market responsive. And it really does my heart good to see that this is the sector of the market that they want to respond to. So we're looking forward to more stuff during Pride Month in June. We certainly congratulate everybody who's taking these steps, and we thank you for listening. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy, marketing and media agency, Chiscom, and Precise.tv. Thanks for listening, and tune in next time.